Welcome, everybody, to this Sati Center event. Today, we're joined by Joe McGee. Joe has worked in Myanmar for nearly 20 years. He started at the U.S. Embassy. Later, he taught at a private school, and then finally, he started his own business. He has spent several years leading various Buddhist-oriented multimedia projects, including writing a meditator's guidebook, which examined the country's diverse meditation traditions and lineages. He has also led pilgrimages for meditators from around the world to some of the sacred sites within that guidebook. In 2019, he founded the Insight Myanmar podcast, which is a website and podcast platform from which to share stories about the spiritual journey, and he interviews teachers, monastics, and lay yogis. Following the military coup in February 2021, the podcast expanded its mission to respond to the crisis. In the coup's aftermath, Joe also established Better Burma, a nonprofit to deliver urgent humanitarian care to Myanmar. And with that, I'd like to welcome Joe McGee. Thank you very much. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for welcoming me here, and I really appreciate this group for taking time on your Saturday, depending on where your time zone is, to uh, to join us. Uh, there's, um, yeah, this is um, this is this is really wonderful to talk to people who care about the issue and to take questions. My, um, there, there's so much to say about Myanmar. There's so much to say about the Buddhist traditions, the the Dhamma, the meditative traditions, the lineages, how they've come over here, and than where they find themselves in Myanmar society with the intersection of worldly affairs and the um, obviously the modern uh, modern issues that are being faced with the coup having been launched a year and a half ago and where where Buddhism fits into that on, on many different sides. So my intention was to talk for to to, to address you just for. A short period, a bit of my background and, and perhaps some thoughts, uh, with the country given my background and then just to take questions, um, and expand on the questions because there's so many different areas where this kind of conversation can go. I think, uh, I, I want to make sure that my comments and my, my insights or, or reflections or anything else are mostly geared towards what people want to know. And I'll do my best to respond with my knowledge and experience. If something is outside of that, I'll, I'll let you know. But as much as possible, I'd really like to be able to, uh, uh, to share, uh, based on where the interest is from the group. And so I'll, um, so my thought is to, to start with a bit of a, you know, 10, 15, 20 minute introduction about myself and my intersection with Myanmar and thoughts about what's happening today and then open it to questions and really, questions about um, whether one is looking more at some strictly Buddhist question, the monasteries or meditative tradition, or whether one is asking a question about the, uh, the some of the modern, uh, some of the more contemporary crises that are going on and what's happening with that or the intersection between the two, I'll, I'll do my best from, from my background. So that being said, I, uh, I first visited Myanmar in 2003 as a meditation student, I was, I had just gotten into meditation a couple of years before that. I was living in Japan and, um, and my, the meditation that brought me there was, uh, was Goenka Vipassana. And I had done, um, I, living in Japan, I had started taking courses there and then I had gone on to, I left my job because the, the experience of the meditation was so powerful for me. I just wanted to devote myself fully to it. So I lived in the Japan Goenka Center for, um, for about a year sitting and serving. And then I went on to Thailand and then I went to, to Burma in 03. And it was, uh, as unlike anything I'd ever, ever experienced before. And I, I knew I wanted to get back, but it was, 
extremely difficult at that time for foreigners to find a way to be there, whether you were there for business or for um, for work or for for meditation. It was um, possible, but it was quite difficult. And so I spent the next four years trying to figure out how to get back. And I was I was looking even at looking at attending a, a Buddhist university in Yangon. I actually flew to D.C. at one point and took an entrance exam to go to that university. And I was looking at teaching English in monasteries. And in the meantime, I ended up going to grad school in, in the U.S. And I was um, uh, incredibly fortunate to find that within my field, which was education and training, uh, that there was a partnership with um, with my graduate university and USAID, um, who was on the ground at that time in 07. And so I was able to go to the place that I so uh, desperately wanted to go to be able to pull back the window of what my very short experience had been in the Dhamma life there. And I was able to do so with a job that was in my field and just doing incredible work. We were, for the next three or four years, I was I was working through the embassy. And this was before the democratic transition period, which um, which occurred in the 2010s, uh, really in earnest, and maybe 12, 13 is when it picked up. So. I finished my my work at the embassy just as the transition was really going into full gear, and uh, and I was I was training at that time. I was training uh, young Burmese, and well, I, I first started to train English teachers how to teach English, and that was the initial remit of my position. But as uh, as time went on, we saw that. Um, that given the need that was there and given, given how neglected so many sectors were, especially education, I developed a uh, training of trainers courses where we trained, um, we trained people from all background, not just English teaching, how to, how to bring participatory, experiential, reflective style education into wherever they were. So we're working with all different ethnicities and religions. So when they go back in their own community, through their monasteries, their churches, uh, whatever, their community centers, we, we taught them how to train them, how to, how to be a trainer, how to not just, just get the information, but actually be able to be empowered and to, uh, to, to, to lead training sessions in the same way that we were. So it was incredibly fulfilling work. I could say a lot more about that. But, um, when that ended, I ended up spending, uh, extended time in, um, uh, in monasteries in rural countryside. That was really what had driven me to want to be there in Myanmar in the first place. But while I was at the embassy, I, I, uh, spent my free time visiting different monastic sites and learning, learning Burmese language and meditating, obviously going to the different places. Uh, but I was the, the work became so, uh, so urgent given the, the condition of the, of the country and what was happening at that time with the military regime that I, I ended up becoming quite a bit more involved than I, than I intended, uh, as, as many people who, who went there during that time can attest to. I, uh, after I finished that work for the next five years or so, I was just kind of, I uh, started out kind of bumming around monasteries, learning Burmese, as I say, but going to monasteries where I was the only foreigner there just to try to immerse myself. Um, uh, up to this time, I had been doing a lot of silent retreats and intensive practice myself, but started to be really curious about practice with eyes open, I guess you can say, wanting to learn not just insight on the cushion, but wanting to learn about the influences of um, Burmese Buddhist culture, of the interactions of the monk's life and everything else. And so I was I was spending time with monasteries doing this. Um, that the next, what what happened next was kind of a confluence of, interesting and unpredictable events that I guess you would say propelled me where 
I am I am now. It started with I was in Injinbin, which is a very very remote monastery. Most Burmese don't even know the town name. It's very important because it's where a monk called Webu Sayada uh, was born and died, and 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 um, as it's believed, attained full enlightenment. Started his meditation center. Uh, he's one of the great 20th century monks of Burma. And when I was there, in must have been about 12 or 13, the monastery had been randomly given a scanner and. Uh, and so I had this idea with a friend of mine who was a Dutch uh, monk from Netherlands that we would scan the archives of the photos from Webu Seida, this monastery had stored for posterity to be able to, uh, to preserve these great photos that of this great monk and, and to scan them since this machine had somehow materialized. Once we scanned the photos, we realized that, um, we thought, well, let's put them together in some kind of, um, slideshow. So they're interesting. That slideshow ended up turning into what you can call a six week project and it produced an amateur documentary, you can say, where, uh, we were, it was quite a, quite a story. We ended up relocating to Skyne. We were literally living in a cave without any internet or, or, or connectivity at all, uh, with simply the files that we had on our computer, um, whatever audio, video, um, uh, picture files, as well as some interviews that we ended up doing. We ended up putting together this kind of one hour, uh, story of what we say it is life that was, you can call it accidental that it turned, that it, it, it came out that, uh, came out to, um, uh, to be somewhat of a documentary. It's a very amateur documentary. I, um, at that time living in Myanmar, the whole tech revolution had happened from 07. I was completely in the dark. I'd never seen a smartphone. I didn't really understand how some parts of the internet worked because we were so isolated there. So I didn't really understand how to use YouTube or, or, um, um, or, or just these common sites. So I had it on my desktop for a while. I finally figured out YouTube six months later and uploaded it. And it, uh, it, it, a lot of meditators around the world ended up seeing it and, and appreciating it. And that led me to uh, contact with Pariyati, which is a, a, some of you may be familiar, Buddhist bookstore connected to the Goenka organization. And, um, and through them, through, through conversations with them, we decided that I would write a guidebook. Uh, this had been a project that had been brewing for several years. I had done some rough versions in my spare time, just trying to, at that time, there were a lot of meditators like myself that were coming and trying to, to, to just better understand where can I go to practice and how do I behave in monasteries and what are the differences between these lineages and what about some of the, uh, there's, there's active lineages of, of full on meditation courses that are being taught at monasteries and such. And then there's historic places like, you know, the great monks of Mahasi or, um, or, uh, Sun Lun or Mogok or Lady Sayadaw. And, on and on, there's these great monks and their sites associated with where they lived, where they died, where they taught, where they may have attained, where they started meditation. And so I started to, uh, through what started as just my own interest and then became something more, I started to, uh, to spend more time, um, cataloging and researching some of these places that were, were still existing, but I, I don't think anyone had really gone in and tried to dig up this information. I think for foreigners, it was just too inaccessible. And for Burmese, I don't think there's that, that same sense of, of history with some of their more recent monastic figures. What I find is most of their interest and tradition goes back 2,500 years ago. So that's, there's a lot of, um, uh, interest and scholarship about the, uh, the, the life of the Buddha and, and, um, stories of, uh, of the Buddha's life, but of their own recent history of great monastics. 
it's uh, there's not as much. And so it was really these treasure troves of places that we were finding that um, that would have uh, artifacts from these people's lives. Uh, talk to people who had stories of themselves or depending on the age, their their parents or grandparents interacting with them. And so started to, to just go around to a lot of these sites and uh, and try to tell these stories so that we um, so that some of these great monastic teachers that had lived before that we could know something uh, really, really three dimensional about their life, you know, where they um, uh, uh, where they were from, where they mm-hmm. what they did in those places and to try to trace that back so that um, so uh, so that 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 with the guidebook that foreign foreign practitioners mm-hmm. that were coming in the future would be able to not only find these places, but also learn about their significance and also learn in kind of the micro map of places of, you know, this is the specific area where this thing happened. And this is the area where this happened. And it was very exciting, you know, like going to the, the, uh, you know, being shown the actual tree where Mahasi Sayada gave his first discourse to um, seven lay disciples. I don't remember the year. I think it was um, either right. It might've been right before world war two, but just being told that story, you know, just seeing the actual tree, of where this whole Mahasi tradition began, where the the initial discourse was given, and, and trying to write about that, trying to write about the significance and the um and and what that discourse was like, and where that was located, so meditators today could come and find that tree and meditate there or pay respects if they're in that that lineage. So that that part was very fulfilling to be able to go back and, and tell those stories. Uh, that led to leading pilgrimages to people that wanted to find those sites. So even as much as we'd write about it in the guidebook, it's very difficult to get to those places. They're very rural and, um, and, uh, and sometimes hard to find and you have cultural or linguistic, uh, connection to be able to do so. And so, um, and so we had, uh, pilgrimages that would bring people to, um, uh, to these sites, to meeting the monks, to being able to ask questions and meditate and pay respects or give dana at some of these places. So that that was the next venture of what I did. What I really was passionate about for some time was wanting to start a podcast because as I found that in many of these endeavors I was doing in writing and giving presentations, which I was also asked to do back at the time, leading pilgrimages, um, in all of these endeavors, the information was all coming from me and I was doing my best to listen to a wide frame of voices that uh, were very informed, very integrated, and trying to give justice to and representation to what I was hearing and really wanting to be authentic. That was that was always something very important to me. I often found that the way Burma has been represented in the West, whether it's um, whether it's more through a political lens or whether it's more through a Buddhist lens, um, through Buddhist teachers, I find that it's often represented in ways that are very much at odds with, with, with what my lived experience is. And I think because it's so closed, you have people that are able to go there for just only a short period of time and then call themselves an authority and try to talk about it or speak about it. And when you stay there longer, you start to realize the, the, the things they're missing. And so uh, a, a lot of my interest in wanting to bring out these voices and these, this information was wanting to, um, wanting to bring more of a ground view of what my experience was of being there that I felt was missing in the conversation. And I was hearing about it from mm-hmm. perhaps uh, bigger platforms. Uh, so um, where was I? So, right. So I, um, my, my interest was, was, was growing steadily and really wanting to start a podcast where these really amazing, dynamic, wonderful figures I was meeting lay and monastic uh, Burmese and foreign that 
that gave some kind of perspective or piece of the puzzle into uh, what is this country, what is this culture, what is this practice that I would be able to to bring in um, this um, their their voices to to that I'd been so privileged to hear to a wider audience. And some of these voices were, you know, people I had met that had taken me years to get to know and built relationships of trust and rapport. And and uh, and sometimes there's a linguistic or cultural element. And so it's very hard to just happen to go find this person and have this conversation. But, you know, I really wanted to get their voice out further. And initially I was doing that through um, through through these other means, you know, pilgrimage and book and presentation and such. But the, the podcast was really an exciting opportunity to me to want to um, have their voice come direct. So these relationships I had made that we had some trust, uh, I can provide some context to their story that they would be able to tell their story of of how what their interaction with the culture and practice was and thereby be able to to bring a light and shine some information that perhaps wasn't wasn't being heard so much and so that um i i was able to uh to start the podcast in 2019 uh we um received a uh a, a well actually let me go back so we had at that time i was living in yangon and really thought that I would be there for some time to come. We were quite uh, integrated there, as mentioned in the introduction. We were also starting a, a business. So, you know, I've really, really been on many different sides of the Myanmar experience, from Buddhism and practice to the human rights and the diplomatic and the education and now entrepreneurial and business and through the transition period. So I've worn a lot of hats and trying to, in, in, in my life there. And we, um, we were living across the street from a monastery and we had, um, we had made an arrangement with the monk at the monastery that he would give us four rooms. And in those rooms, we completely furnished them. We had one, two male, two female. We started putting out the word in just the meditator network that was coming through Burma. I guess you can say that these rooms were free to stay for any, uh, anyone that was going on a pilgrimage or a retreat that didn't want to stay in a hotel, that wanted to stay in a monastery and, um, kind of be around that environment longer, not be somewhere commercial. That these rooms were were free for anyone to use. So that was that was quite a nice thing that we were doing. To um, that was connecting us to a lot of people coming in and out, and, and just felt very good to be able to provide that service of just nice, clean, comfortable monastery rooms that um, that that could uh, could help people on their spiritual journey there. And we also made a recording studio. We had we had uh, uh, invested one of the, the guest rooms in our. Uh, where we were living to be a podcast studio where we were going to start recording a number of in-person interviews with all the people that would pass through um, through, th- through this connection or through my last number of years there that I knew and try to get their stories, just try to archive their stories to understand them. Um, I, in March 2020, getting closer to present, I took a brief trip home, what I thought was a brief trip, to, to visit my family packed a suitcase. And as soon as we landed in the U.S., the pandemic broke. And so we were stuck here for, you know, beyond the three weeks we imagined, we were stuck here for several, what we thought maybe weeks or months more. Uh, as we know, the pandemic stretched on. Myanmar closed, like many countries, Myanmar closed its borders almost immediately. And it was very difficult for any kind of travel. So we started to, uh, to, to look to settle here just a little bit longer than we thought. And the coup happened. So, you know, basically my story is that from pandemic to coup, we packed, we had our life in Yangon, we had our, our business, our community, our friends, our network, our, you know, the podcast work starting up and, and so many other things. And we packed a suitcase for a three-week trip here and we've 
now I've been here about two and a half years with like, no end in sight. So, um, so that's the story of how I got here. Uh, when the coup hit in February 1st of uh, last year, 2021, uh, like many people, we were just, I was just, um, beside myself. You know, I, uh, I think a lot of foreigners who came to Myanmar after the transition didn't really understand what it was like when the military regime was there because things changed so fast and even the younger generation didn't quite get it. And, and so when the coup hit, you know, I immediately knew what those dark days were. The second I heard about it, I knew that we were going back there. It just devastated me. You know, it just, even getting emotional talking about it, it just devastated me that these, these people that had suffered so much for so many years and had had just one brief and rather messy moment where they were trying to, to get out of it were now um, going to be plunged back into an unspeakable horror and darkness that, that I, anyone who knew anything about this military, this, this fascism, uh, this brutality, you know, this evil knew that this would be, this would be coming and, um, and it would be terrible. And, and it has been, um, a young generation that was for the first time looking out towards the world and, um, and having opportunities they never had before of education, technology, of job opportunities, uh, people that were in emerging fields and, and having their lives ahead of them, uh, people who were engaged in different kinds of progressive politics and, 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 and trying to open the MR up that way. Uh, they've been crushed and, you know, the, the hopes and the lives of the young people have just been, um, as, you know, um, uh, as this plays out, we'll see, but at the moment they've been completely crushed and destroyed at every level. And, um, and so in those early days, uh, and it, it was interesting because for me, I was quite involved in that stuff in when I was at the embassy from 07 to 11 or so. And once I got more into the, the Dama world, I, I, I slipped away from that. I stopped really following up and was much more, <laughs> even, uh, as, as things were going on in Myanmar I, at the time and in Yangon in the, the mid, the mid to late 2000, 2010s. I was, uh, at that time, I was, uh, I was living in the 19th century, living in the 20th, the early 20th century, just going to these great monasteries of Lady and Mahasi and Mogok and these others. And so I was living more in the past than in the present. When this happened, you know, we, we, uh, we, we knew immediately we had to respond. We didn't know how it was, it was quite, um, shocking and painful for all of us involved for obvious reasons. Um, from the world, done for the last 10 years, I had developed something of a platform among some type of, some community of meditators. I, I don't think there was anyone doing the kinds of things I was. So by virtue of that, I, I was, uh, I, I had some, you could say I had some, some trust and, and some, um, some trust in my platform and in myself. And I, I had only really, it's only before the coup, it had only really been one way traffic. I, I was just doing things really for my own enjoyment and to want to help foreign meditators that wanted a better understanding like I had wanted back in the three. So, you know, all the, the videos and the, and the, the podcasts and the writing, the books, the, you know, presentations, everything else. It was really just wanting to give and share information for, you know, largely for my own enjoyment of wanting to talk about something I cared about and bring more knowledge of it. Um, once the coup happened, we, and we were looking at how to respond and we had this, felt this tremendous, um, potential generosity on the part of of meditators who cared about these vulnerable communities we started a nonprofit. we found a new nonprofit six weeks in called better burma through our at that time the banks were totally closed and shut down and so no one knew how to get money there we happened to find someone who 
had a trusted network of bringing money in. And so we wanted to, uh, we, we didn't know how long the coup would last at that point, but we just wanted to make sure we were doing everything legal and proper. So we, we founded a 501c3 uh, nonprofit and, uh, and were able to, to collect donations from, from everyone really. But I think meditators gave, um, the, the meditator community that, that, uh, that are, that the work had been going out to, I think they were really the primary givers in, in, in the beginning, at least of, uh, of just giving donations to be able to help vulnerable communities. So we were, um, so the, the nonprofit is still going strong today. And since that time, we've given money to, um, to monks and nuns. There's, there's a lot to say about that because, um, monks, the, I mean, the country is, um, the country is, is, is going towards ruins. The economy has, has completely, completely collapsed. There's very few op- job opportunities and there's, there's, um, we're starting to see starvation on greater levels. Um, I'm trying to cut myself off here because there's so much I can say about the state of the country now. Uh, but I want to limit it for, for, for this current, um, explanation of what our nonprofit has done. The monks and nuns, uh, like many other people in the country just have not been getting enough food, uh, from lack of resources and, and, and what's been going on. And so we've don't, we've, we've put some of that, some of those donations into being able to do donation events to give rice and, and other and cooking oil and other things to monasteries and nunneries that, um, the lo- local people can no longer support because they don't have resources of their own. Um, we've put more recently, we've, we've allocated a, a bit to IDP camps, internally displaced and in, in, internally displaced person camps. These are, the military has been on a crazed rampage of going through the countryside, uh, in, um, especially, uh, Sagain and Magway and Chin and some of the other regions and literally burning village after village to the ground. There's estimates now of millions of people that have lost their home of tens of thousands of homes that have been burned to the ground. Uh, they're because they're not winning. They don't, they're, they're just taking vengeance out. So, IDP numbers have been growing and refugee numbers in Thailand and India have been growing tremendously as well. Uh, during the third wave of COVID was particularly bad there and was actually being used as kind of was weaponized by the, the military, um, as, as it started to spread. So we put, uh, we, we supported that as well. And, um, the CDM movement, which is the civil disobedience movement. These are civil servants who have refused to go to the office because they don't recognize the legitimacy of the government, of the military, I should say, not the government because they're, they're not the government. They're the, they're, uh, they're a military, uh, regime that has taken power by force and, uh, and they've refused to go to office to, um, serve them. And so they've, by, uh, tens of thousands of, um, civil servants refusing to go to their offices, They've basically shut, helped contribute to shut the country down so that it's inoperable to run. And, um, and, uh, and so, and they've gone into hiding. They're subject to arrest and, and worse for not going to work. And so we've also put money into supporting the, to those civil servants and their family that are taking that ethical stand along with uh, a range, uh, another, a wider range of non-violent humanitarian, um, projects that are going on with our contacts on the ground. Uh, in the meantime, and this is kind of closing my introductory talk, which, uh, this is, has, uh, gone on about 20 minutes or so. So, um, in the, um, uh, the, with the podcast itself, when, when this first happened, a lot of these adjustments we thought might be temporary because we didn't know how long this would last. I think that was true of every, anyone, any activist, anyone with a platform, anyone who cared just trying to figure out what, what can I do? What can I offer? What can I, what can I support? What is my role in this? 
because when you're living in a society or when you're connected to society that has the bottom is completely dropped and everything is upside down, uh, there, there's um, considerable upheaval in trying to determine who you who you are in these new rules and how you um, what rules you take and that that uh, going through that process. And so, um, as we transformed the podcast at first, we thought, well, let's just let's let's start to cover this in an emergency way and all these these interviews we'd had that were on the shelf of these great dhamma teachers and meditators it, it felt very wrong in the first um few months of the coup to talk about some beautiful spiritual journey when the country was on fire when monasteries were literally on fire and so we we really did a a, a shift to be able to tell these stories when we're getting out in the media and we we would try to have to look for a buddhist inter- intersection when there was there um, to be able to look at where Buddhist beliefs intersected with what the audience, with what the, the, the guest was saying. But when there was none, that was okay too. We gave ourselves permission to expand beyond that. And that temporary shift has become permanent. So we're, I would say now the podcast is telling a very wide range of stories of the resistance movement in Myanmar, but it's, but it's still keeping the Buddhist undertone that's there. And that's a big part of, of who we are and what we try to do. And there's still elements of that in there. And as I think after about a year into the, the coup, it started to feel that these stories were really getting heavy one after the other and wanted to balance that back with the spiritual stories. And so we've been bringing back from the archives as well as from new interviews and one you know, people that came here might have been brought over by the interview with Gil Fransdell, which I was very, very fortunate to get to talk to him. It was really a, an honor for me. And uh, and so we're integrating stories that are telling about the wider resistance movement and the nature of the coup with stories of the intersection of Buddhism with stories where it's really just the spiritual journey, like with Gil Fransdale, or, you know, 90% of that talk was really just about his own spiritual journey in Myanmar and then bringing that back to the U S. Um, but along with that, we've been reaching out to people of all different backgrounds, talking to historians and journalists and scholars and activists and, uh, even hip hop stars and artists and uh, graffiti uh, artists and uh, and all kinds of people. So really wanting to, I think one of the things that I realize our our podcast mission has become is that I, I think that that historically there's always been this danger of Myanmar being presented in a very reductionist, one dimensional light, very black and white. You know, during the Cold War, it was black and white. It was one of the big players in the Cold War stage. It was in the non-aligned movement, but it was there was a lot of influence from U.S., um, uh, Russia, and China, uh, and then the drug wars with the Golden Triangle. It was it was seen one-dimensionally again with that, with Aung San Suu Kyi, and with the democracy movement, the monks versus the general, or the the, the lady versus the soldiers. And so it's always had these really sharp edges of this or that. And the more you go into Myanmar, you see that if there's any country that's not this or that, it's, it's Myanmar. It's a explosion of diversity and color and, uh, and, uh, and different ways of thinking and ways of living and people doing all kinds of dynamic things. And so I think what our podcast platform has tried to do, you know, first with that foundation of Buddhist life, even, even among Buddhist life, if you're just restricting your study, or your interest to um, Burmese Buddhism, the diversity within Buddhism is is stunning. It's it's I think that because the forms look so um, similar, you know, they wear the same robes, they follow the same rules, they have the same protocols, they have the same schedule. There can be this kind, and, and not just today it's been like that, but for many decades and many centuries, there could be this feeling that it's this kind of monolithic, unchanging, 
rather boring, um, conservative uh, clergy that is um, that um, th- there's not much more to look at. But there's, you know, that couldn't be further from the truth. There's incredible creativity and critical thinking and inventiveness and pushing at the edges of Burmese Buddhism. There's also, as many people know, nationalism and racism and and um, selfish ends and, and other things combined with that. So, you know, it's it's really a um, cacophony of uh, of different emerging um, potentialities, and it's been that way uh, since is, uh, whatever I've read about it historically. And the country itself is like that. And so I think my interest in both telling the story of Burmese Buddhism, not through my own words, but through which I'm doing now. I haven't given a presentation like this. I guess you can call this a presentation. And sometime I really like to, to 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 bring out those voices of the people I'm connecting with and get them on center stage. Um, but, uh, but through those interviews and through those discussions to be able to, um, to, to bring those voices and to break down what I think is a really, uh, inaccurate reductionist view of, of a blandness or a, a, a this or that black and white kind of thing that, um, that these voices really break that down and really show the amount of divergence and diversity and, and, and everything else, both in the country um, and uh, as well as within Burmese Buddhism and monasticism itself. So I'm no expert on that. I'm, I'm an enthusiast. I'm um, it's something I find endlessly interesting and fascinating. And, and, and I have more questions than, than answers with all of that as I go deeper into it. But you know, I hope that some of what we've done through a podcast platform has been to give a wider appreciation for the forms and the possibilities of how things have emerged and played out. And now with the coup to be able to give voice to those who whose freedom has been so violently taken away and are sacrificing or making sacrifices and showing courage in ways that, none, that few of us could ever begin to imagine to you know, to to seek those things we take for granted, freedom, human rights, um, the uh, to be able to live with dignity and uh, and to see people that are risking everything to be able to create that country is um, the kind of society they want is uh, is something I've I've personally never, uh, never, never been had a direct experience of seeing what that's been like. So that's been that's been quite powerful and quite an honor to be involved in supporting that in any way we can. So. I will close there. Um, I haven't given a presentation for some time. Usually I'm the one asking questions. So I hope that was uh, somewhat interesting. And um, and yeah, I, I think I'll, from here, I'll just go in the direction of where there may be questions. You can feel free to ask a question or also type one if you prefer. Hi, uh, I'm in the, the Bay Area, San Francisco. Um, a couple of questions um, what, where do I go to get information just about what are the roots of this, uh, fa- the fascist, the military fascism? I mean, I, I assume China is sending a lot of money their way. What resources can I, any websites I can go to to learn more? Um, yeah. So if you, I mean, if you're talking about the, um, like you're talking about currently kind of the the day by day um news that's trickling out you know there's a number of local journalism sites um that that give updates i think they're uh if you're looking more at like um at at deeper studies of um 
uh, deeper studies and investigative journalism that's looking at like how is this regime being funded. Uh, I would, off the top of my head, I, I would, I would hesitate. I would have to go back and, and look at some of the articles that have been that impacted me. I mean, um, there's um, Global Witness has done a lot of work. Amnesty International is there. Uh, there, I'm thinking more of individual names that have have done like really uh, superb investigative reports into where the military is is getting funded and getting their resources. Then the, the names are coming up for me now more than the publications where they write. So I would. Uh, probably it'd be best for me to um, to take a moment and prepare that after uh, to compile that after after this talk, some some resources where it's best to to, to check and and, uh, and and who have done reports, um, and to, to talk to some people who are who are more in that field. Just speaking anecdotally, and I, and I guess there's there's two parts of your question. You know, there's the roots of how the Tatmada the Burmese military came to be what it is, and there's the question of what how are they currently being funded now. And it sounds like you're asking more the latter question. And, and for that, you know, Russia has been very active. Uh, no one really knows what China's doing right now. They, they haven't really shown their cards. And uh, my personal feeling is that um, Russia might invite a sense of chaos there. It might be they, they don't really have many ramifications if the, the country blows apart um, and, it, and it might actually serve their interests, whereas China desperately wants stability and, and it wants control. But having a, a uh, an emerging civil war that's getting more bloody and more unruly is definitely not in China's interest. And I, I think they want to back the winner. I think that if, um, if, if the, the non-military forces can show a coalition and, and, and even show a, a not antagonistic towards China, then, um, and that's the winning horse, then I think, uh, I don't think that China is necessarily embedded or, or in bed with, um, with the military, but that's just a guess. I mean, I, I was just talking about this with someone much more, knowledgeable than myself the other day on a podcast interview which hasn't been released yet and he he was uh he was saying you know we at the point we're kind of wondering what china's doing they're not really showing their cards directly and if they wanted to be more involved they could be sending all kinds of advisors and material and everything else but i i don't you know it's certainly not in their interest to prop up a a, a bloody military regime that doesn't have a, ch a, a chance of full-out success and which is hated by the country. Um, they want to back the winner. I think Russia's a different story. They've been much more involved um, in overt ways of support. And just last week, um, Min Aung who's the Myanmar dictator who started the coup, he met Putin. Uh, he met Putin and he said that Putin was uh, a great man, not just for his country, but the world and had done great efforts to create world peace. Um, you know, if there's not more irony than that, I, I don't know what it is. But um, but yeah, that's uh, at the moment. Um, it's been a lot of overt support from Russia that has been coming in since since the coup, and there have been attempts from some of the wider international bodies to try to close off uh, the funding opportunities of where, like with the Myanmar oil and gas moj, trying to close off um, where the regime is getting its money and um, and uh, and and its legitimacy. Thank you. I, I realize I, I should go over to UC Berkeley's South and Southeast Asian Studies Department probably has the, that would know that. I, I don't know if other people are dying to get in. One thing, I'm, I'm very interested in climate change, and I'm wondering if you have any sense of how, uh, I know you don't know the country that well or historically, but uh, how climate change is playing out in, in Burma. Yeah, well, I was just reading a book that was saying that Burma is one of the five countries that is 
is is predicted to be most impacted by climate change in the world and so it's a really big deal um we we have a a, a guest that we've been trying to connect with for the last few months and haven't done the interview yet he's a uh, he he deals with environments and sustainability. He's been in, in Myanmar working with some local um, local people there for for some years, and so that 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 interview when it comes out will definitely focus quite exclusively on on the issue of climate change there and on on environmental sustainability. Um, I think this is another of the really tragic and sad stories is that leading up to the coup. Uh, there were a lot of, with the opening and the transition that society was going through, there were a lot of progressive causes that were now coming before that we'd never seen before, whether it was LGBTQ, uh, women's rights and gender equality, um, the ethnic, the uh, ethnic peoples, or in the environment was another one. So there were, there was a growing awareness that I saw in Yangon and in some of the forest regions where the, the military had really uh, engaged in in extreme exploitation of the resources and the people there to try to put on the map uh, the the need for environmental sustainability. And of course, Cyclone Nargis in 2008, which was a pivotal event in Myanmar's history, it killed about 150,000 people in the Delta and brought havoc to Yangon. That that was one of the, the, the worst storms we've seen in, um, you know, in our lifetimes anywhere. And, uh, and and certainly one could look at climate change affecting that as well. But, you know, now, and there have been some articles, I can't remember any of the links because I just read them and I have so much going through my head, but there have been some articles, maybe a Google search would bring this up, where people have explored how the coup is impacting the uh, environmental sustainability and climate change and everything else and looking at how, because the military is, is, is obviously so um, extractive and exploitative of the land, and the resources that uh, that's a huge step back. And there, there have been some articles that have been written lately, looking and examining in more detail uh, exactly how um, devastating the military rule will be towards uh, climate change in general in Myanmar. Okay. Thank thank you so much for your work and your compassion and your enthusiasm. Oh yeah, thank you. Uh, I had a question for you, Joa. Um, I was wondering, you know, I, I realize things are a little uh, stressed right now and people aren't, uh, Western tourists aren't coming and going, but, you know, maybe with the history of before before COVID and the coup and maybe looking forward, uh, what is there any advice that you would give people who want to go to Myanmar to practice, uh, you know, how, either how to get started or how to look for a center or, you know, anything along those lines? Um, you know, it's funny, before the pandemic and the coup, that, that was one of the most common questions I had was through friends of friends or networks or some of the work that I'd done, people asking, you know, I want to I have this kind of experience or I want to go to this type of monastery or this kind of teacher. And so we, um, so I, I can't, I don't know how many people I've, I've come in contact with and, and supported them, helped them in some way to to be able to get integrated, find a place or answer questions, whether it was in a, a, a small or not so small way. That, that was really one of the, one, a pleasure as well of just having been to Myanmar in 03 and 07 when I was, I was so interested and eager and yet had so little to go on. So really wanting to provide something that I would have wanted at that time for a richer experience. Uh, since the pandemic, especially since the coup, the country is officially open for tourism now in a limited sense. I would strongly advise no one um, to ever consider going while the military regime is in power 
I, I don't think there's any any ethical or safe way that that one can go at this time. And this is just uh, an enormous loss for the spiritual and Dhamma community that this has all but been closed off. Uh, the reason I say this is many fold. I mean, one, the Burmese people themselves are saying don't come. Um, I mean, that's very clear. Uh, they they and the reason for that is coming as a Westerner to Myanmar is a kind of legitimacy. It is it is in some degree an implicit sense or maybe more than implicit recognizing the military's the military regime's legitimacy in controlling and ruling the country. And even if one says, well, I'm, I'm not going to support certain kinds of businesses, or I'm going to be careful where I stay and where I go. This, this is still not the time. This is, um, uh, simply by, by being in the country and being a tourist is showing, uh, some degree of privilege and, and I think blindness and, and, um, and, and legitimacy that, that is being conferred upon them. Uh, another reason is it's not safe. There, there is, um, there are attacks everywhere and, um, there is no place that is safe. There have been horrendous stories that I've heard of monasteries and nunneries literally being under assault. Having, there is a, uh, if one, I think it's episode number 117, I would strongly recommend people listening to. It's a, a monk in the Mahasi tradition in rural Sagain who, um, it's called Attack on a Meditation Center is the name of the podcast for those that, that look at it. It's, it's, we haven't ever done an interview like this where the monk is describing uh in while while he's leading silent retreats at his monastery uh there are they're getting assaulted in all directions from the military they're getting literally getting bombed by the Myanmar Air Force there some of their buildings are blown up on campus there are nuns meditating in kutis that have bullets flying through the kutis i don't think any nuns were injured but there are pictures of kutis that are shot up by bullets uh, mortar attacks, um, on the meditations. I mean, they, they, they weren't, I should clarify, they weren't trying to attack this meditation center. They were attacking the villages in the region. We have no idea why. And there's no sense in asking why at this point, because they're literally just burning down village after village. As the monastery was supported by two neighboring villages, they were being indiscriminate. So mortars were coming on there. And then the soldiers actually invaded the grounds, firing their weapons in the meditation center and going into the nuns, Damahal and Nankutis and disrupting them as well. Um, this is one of, unfortunately, many stories that I could share that there's no safety and there's no sanctuary anywhere. So it's, it's just simply not safe. Um, another factor is the limited resources. So going there and being, the Burmese are some of the most generous people in the world and are completely, are unconditional in wanting to support foreigners that go there for practice, um, for however long that practice takes. I can't tell you how many monasteries I've been to where the monk has said, um, you stay here as long as you want, you stay for your life, that's fine, we'll build a, a special place for you to, to, to live in practice and we'll bring you food every day. Um, they're the most generous people I've ever encountered and and yet they don't have enough food for themselves. And so so um, it's also not the right time in that sense. So, you know, it's very painful to say that, um, but um, but I simply think there's 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 no ethical way and no safe way that one could possibly hope to to just put on practice only blinders and say now I'm I'm just going to engage in this sector of it. So, you know, there there are many ways to support and there are many ways to grow in the Dhamma as well, even while not being there through Burmese lineages or teachers or, or teachings. Um, but unfortunately, as the military is in power and there's this current state of affairs, I, I don't see any way that ethically or safety-wise that a forward practitioner monastic can go at this point. Great, thank you.
Um, also in the chat, uh, Alan asked a question. Uh, he was asking, uh, so so is this guide of guidebook of Myanmar Buddhist sites available online? Yeah. So the the first part of it came out some years ago, and that is available. Um, it's called path in English is the name and it's on Paryati's website. I can give links for that as well. It's a free download. Um, it's the, the, the entire project was donation based. So everyone working on it was, was volunteers and it was made freely available and done. The second part uh, has been done for some years, but it's simply not been laid out. Uh, it's kind of like years and years of work and it got to the 99, 99th, 99th percentile of, of, of completion. And very fortunately, we have a meditator's friend of mine, who has taken, who, who asked me what's going on with the second part and he's taken on the layout responsibility. So this year he has been finalizing the layout and, and that's the one that's really quite comprehensive in terms of tracking, um, not the entire country and not every tradition because that would be endless, but in being able to tell a number of these stories that I talk about, about some of the historical sites of these great monks and that, um, snippets and excerpts of the, that part two has, has been on the blog uh, over the years and, and, um, and certainly as fodder for podcast conversations and such. But the book itself, which is now more, you know, armchair traveling reading is, uh, will, will be available, um, uh, as, as he continues to lay this out. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully later this year, but the first part is, has been there for some time. Uh, and that's, uh, more of an introduction to planning and coming and, and I can, you can Google that now, or I can, I can give the link after the talk. And Jenny asks in the chat, how important is jhana meditation in Myanmar monasteries? Do most follow the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification as guidelines, any online jhana teachings you can suggest? Yeah, so I've, I've never myself practiced on jhana. Of course, Pa Oak is, uh, is the place for that. And, um, in terms of if most monasteries practice it, uh, I, I would say no, you know, it, it, there's, there's, and, and the answer is not any, anything about the, the value or lack of value of jhana. It reflects the extraordinary diversity of monasteries and the functions they serve. Of course, there's monasteries that have more social missions or more community places or education or health or things like that. There's also meditation monasteries that are primarily focused on meditation. Even among those monasteries focused on meditation, there is such an extraordinary di divergence and difference of how one can practice of all the different things that one can do. So, you know, certainly there are many monasteries that would fall, many, many teachings, many lineages that would have some kind of jhana element. And even a lot of these questions, as you break them down more, you find that that you, many questions I, I've been asked over the years about Burmese Buddhism, I find I have to spend more time examining and unpacking the nature of the question than trying to get into the answer, because it's, it's, um, the question is coming from a different context of practice. And in what I found in Myanmar is, is it just, it plays out a bit differently. And, and sometimes you have to just unpack what the question means and where it's coming from. And with, um, with this, you know, as I've gotten just anecdotally, I could say, as I've gotten into, learning about different techniques and lineages. Um, and, and there's so much there. I mean, there are so few meditative traditions which have found their way to the West, really through an emissary, through a teacher who speaks English, through a primary student who speaks English or who's been able to travel. And so the 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 window into the type of Burmese meditation practices that are available to foreigners is a very small microcosm of what's actually available to Burmese in the country and major traditions, millions of followers with with all kinds of literature have simply no foreign practitioners uh, or have not 
made their way out of the country in any way for for whatever the reason is and so um and um and so with that when i find out about lineages or practices i've never heard of i'm often very interested just to learn about well you know what's the, the lineage of this teacher and did he study under someone i know that would make sense with him make sense with you know what, what kind of where he's standing in this framework and what does he teach and start to get into those nitty-gritty technical aspects it is confusing you know it is it is not like a checklist of like is this scanning the body is this watching the abdomen is this um is this meta is this is this jhana sometimes like with paok it's it's very very simple i mean obviously paok is is the place for jhana but with other techniques it it can be there could be elements of that in there and you could be left in these gray areas trying to look at them first is trying to understand what what the heck are they teaching and what is the nature of this practice and this, this technique and then once you understand that further trying to look at well is this is this just the practice that this student is telling me is this the widespread practice of the teacher um how how flexible is the teacher in terms of giving this wide range of possibilities or is this the main thing he teaches and then once you determine that you know looking at well, well whatever this practice is whatever I'm I'm learning about how this technique is is it fair to say this is jhana does this have elements of jhana is this using jhana as an ends or as a means and so all these questions come in so it becomes you know then it becomes kind of a scholarly research project to be able to have a technical definition of what jhana is and and determine to what degree different practices are are based in jhana and teaching jhana and uh and and that's where the where for me where the mystery lies in trying to to bring that out further so i i i uh that's probably not so much an answer to the question as much as the examination of the question itself um which i hope is okay the visudimaga yeah that's um i haven't gotten so into um uh scripture myself and i i know there there's some of my foreign friends have uh have gotten quite into study and and in, in burmese monasteries it's not so common many foreigners are are just more based on practice so i i know that it 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 is um uh well for for many people probably know the abhidhamma is the most important thing in, in Myanmar that that's something that 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 centers much of buddhist life and discussion and practice and more than other buddhist countries uh i i know this more probably the visuddhimagga and the the um um the abhidhamma more on a superficial level because i haven't actually gone into study courses so it's more hearing about those who are studying or or discussing it but i i don't have that strong technical background myself so Oh, online teachings um yeah i just saw that so i would i would suggest uh i would definitely guide you towards beth upton um the interview that i did with her can can be found it's like 100 104 maybe 105 i'm trying to remember the episode number no i think i'm off um but if you just search beth upton on the podcast feed you could hear the interview with her and if you go if you search her her name online you can find her site and then you could look at her her um um her uh she has some videos and online some online stuff and also in person retreats and we have another question from Ellen she's wondering how you ensure your own safety and how do you protect yourself well i i'm not in myanmar right now so i'm i'm not um i um my my physical safety i'm i'm um I'm not as worried about. I mean, we do take precautions of a number of ways. I mean, there have been attempted attacks on Burmese democracy forces in the US. The the uh Chamotun who was the um the the Burmese ambassador to the UN who refused to support the military, there was an attempted assassination on him in New York. And we actually went to New York for an event sometime after that and we were 
we were uh, we were taking precautions there. We did have one interaction, which what was probably a, a, a military informant that was that was a bit weird. But as far as being outside of Myanmar, you know, we, there, there's not um, there's probably not a huge risk for personal safety. Um, there's a tremendous risk for anyone that we come in contact with. Uh, any you know, we're, we're in contact with all kinds of people in Myanmar. And I would say that when this whole thing started, it was really the first few days and weeks were really a question of to what degree do we want to get involved? Are we ready to get involved and to really disrupt and sacrifice our life to be able to support this, knowing the risks are so huge, uh, the implications are so big uh, the, of doing so. And what I started to see was that all of my friends were out on the streets, you know, and were 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 joining nonviolent protests, people that had never been political before were um were standing up to tanks on the street saying we want our democracy back and it just broke my heart you know just um just seeing such beautiful decent people that i had had experiences in my life that were put in a position where they had to say please respect our human rights and be on the streets and they were so vulnerable it, it made me realize at that moment that i i would be a complete hypocrite if i did not work as much as I can from a place of safety and freedom for, for people that had done so much for me for so many years. And so, um, and so I've really, I really say that I follow in their lead. I defer to them completely. I defer to what they tell me is safe and unsafe. Uh, I defer to, um, who is willing to talk and how they're able to talk. And, um, and I defer to, um, I defer to their energy as well. You know, I, I see myself as, as, from the privilege and safety of where I'm able to operate that, that I'm not living through this. I'm not facing the terrible kind of decisions that they are facing now. And I can never imagine if I was facing that, how I would respond. It's unimaginable to me. Uh, I don't have control of that, but what I do have control of is to be a sounding board, to, to be able to find resources where they can't um, to, and to be able to follow up in the background of um of what they're trying to do that I can give a little more strength and and support to it. And so I really I really try to model everything I do off of deferring to what they tell me they need and um and and how I can provide that support and and that goes with risk as well that realizing that if if people are literally risking their home, their family, their lives and everything else um then I I I, I mean I realized early on I can't be trying to hold back to this thing or that thing, or, you know, I just, I, I, um, or just have something in the back of my mind. Well, maybe, you know, if, um, if, uh, if the military does win and, and things go back to normal, the military, I don't want to be blacklisted and I want to be able to go there. All those thoughts that were there at the beginning, once I saw the level of commitment people had, this was all or nothing. This was the last battle. This was their time to win their democracy. There was nothing I could hold on to either. I had to be willing to, to risk whatever my risk was in, in that game. Um, while at the same time being as, um, as, as safe as I could, knowing that, you know, anything I do to lift my head above the surface is not safe. I mean, I lived in a military dictatorship for years before, for half a decade before the country opened up. I know I was never in danger, um, because I was a foreigner and, and it was very unlikely that physical harm would come to me, but I, I could, uh, so I didn't have that element while I was living there. But I, everyone there had to be extremely careful. You know, what you threw in the garbage, what you said on the phone, what you talked about going down the street, what, where, what, where your computer devices were, who you knew and how you knew them. It was constant. It was, it was this constant radar you had to have of what it was like to live and survive in a society that was not free 
and where the, the the penalties were so high for for making a mistake, you know, for either getting kicked out of the country and having your life there ended or much worse, having one of your contacts thrown in jail for no reason but association with you. And so all of these things that I had learned and lived out a decade before, I had to remember how to bring back because I had gotten so relaxed in Myanmar. It was such in a transition period. All the hackles were down. There was there it wasn't like everything was uh, was free and wonderful, but it was it was much different than it had been before. And um, and so I had to remember and everyone did who had lived through that before had to remember what it was like to be so cautious and careful again, while also knowing, I mean, the biggest thing that I learned from that time, which I applied to this current time, is that if you lift your head above the water, you're not safe. And you just have to accept that. You just have to know that everything is a um, everything is a calculated risk. And it's just a question. You have to do it with, with full eyes open that you're, um, you know, that you can't have, you can't have both. And if you're going to decide to be involved, then you have to do it in the smartest and safest way possible. But you can't lie to yourself and say that you're going to do it in a way that doesn't incur risk. It is going to incur risk. And, and you just have to know the system and know the dangers enough to be able to navigate that and to, to make the wisest decisions you can. And, um, and, and, and that's what I do while deferring to those who are risking much more and, um, and trying to make sure that what I'm doing is in line with their wants and needs. I, I never, I don't want to be telling them how to wage this revolution or, or what to, you know, or, or being a backseat driver and, and, and what I think should be happening. And I want to be a sounding board, a, a friend, an ally, a, a supporter, a donor, um, a conversation partner. And, uh, and, and, and just kind of fit in where I can with that. So, um, so yeah, so I hope, hope that, uh, kind of, kind of jumble of words answers the question somehow. I was wondering if you could speak on what you think the motivation of the military is. Is it just money and power that they're seeking? Or do you think that, or at least that they think that there's forces inside the country that are pulling it apart and they need a strong central hand to control those forces so the country doesn't break apart? Uh, the question of why Minam Lang launched the coup is something that many very intelligent analysts are endlessly debating. It, it was There's a number of theories out there. For one thing, it has to be said, it was, and I think Minam Lang himself would probably agree with this now if he's being honest, it was an incredibly stupid move that um that that i think he would very much take back the military was in a very good position before this was launched men online was in a very good position as the country had transitioned they they had not gone the way of reconciliation and other um um like kind of uh post oppressive states like south africa or whatnot where they they looked for a way to move on the, there was no punishments. No one was held to account. Uh, as many people know, the Rohingya crisis happened when the democratic government was, was nominally in charge. Uh, and so, um, this, uh, the military was in a very good place. They were assured 25% of the seats of parliament that, that was automatic to the military. There were certain ministries that, of uh, security that they controlled. Uh, and they were extremely corrupt and wealthy. They had their hands in everything, everything, Myanmar economic holdings, which was a, uh, a um, kind of a, a, a corrupt um, profitability for the military that had its hands in everything from tourism to teak to gems to um, 
oil and, and everything else. And the different generals all were controlling different parts of it. So they were, they had no risk of, uh, they had no risk to their safety. They had no risk to their wealth. They had generational wealth of, of the kind that we can't imagine down to their, you know, for hundreds of years, their family could, could prosper. And, um, and despite having such a good deck of hands, they still decided to do this. That's what made it so confusing and confounding. And uh, as one guy I spoke to on one of the podcasts, his voice always, I always quote and when I get asked this question, he said that um, in this period of transition, we had this small ray of sunshine. We had never had this sunshine in, in half a century. And we had seen other Southeast Asian countries that had opportunities and could prosper. We, we just were so happy to finally have a, a, a semi-free atmosphere where we could operate that we had never had before that we were just like, let, you know, okay, you keep what you have. You, you, you have these privileges that, um, that none of the rest of us have, but you just give us this little slice that we can now try and work for ourselves. And, uh, and, and we'll just, we'll, we'll forget, maybe we won't forgive, but we'll forget and move on because we, we just, we just want to be able to get on with our lives. And then when the military took that last sliver last year, the many people were like, well, you can't do this. You just can't do this. You know, we were willing to let so much else slide and, and let you get away with all these other things and still have this kind of control and corruption, but you can't take the last thing that's left for us. You just can't do that. And that's where the protest began that, um, that this, this absolute, uh, oppression that was being faced in terms of why Min Online did it. You know, one of the theories that's been bouncing around is that he was approaching retirement age. Uh, he desperately wanted to be president. He, the military has, traditionally and historically underestimated the the depth of hatred and um and mistrust and dislike they have throughout the country they 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 constantly think that they're more popular than they are and every time they have a semi-free election they get five percent of the vote and they realize um well the election must be must be fake and, and must be uh must be fake results because obviously uh people like us more than these these vote tallies tell us and um and so, uh, and so with that, you know, Min Online, um, probably underestimated the, uh, lack of support that he had. Uh, he desperately wanted to be president and he, um, uh, and because he was approaching retirement age, there's a theory that he was afraid that in the tradition of, of autocratic states, once you are out of power, then you immediately can be oppressed by the next guy who takes power. You can be put in jail, have your family's wealth cut off, et cetera. And so one of the theories out there is that he decided he launched this coup to um, put himself in a position of greater power and to uh, ensure that that he would, uh, if he approached retirement age, that it couldn't be taken away by the next dictator. But I don't think we we really know. I, I, these are uh, I don't think we well know for many years, but these are the theories. Alan's asking if you're satisfied with the amount of attention the military coup is getting within the Western Buddhist media and organizations. It seems pretty muted to what is happening there. Mm, yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think that in Buddhist publications and, and international media, I think it's um, it's it's incredibly poorly covered. It's it's extremely shameful. This is a a story that has everything. Um, it has, it has, uh, the depravity and evil of the, the dictator and the selflessness and the courage of, of the protesters and trying to resist it, resist it and stand for certain ideals that we seem to hold sacred in this country. And, 
you know, and it's um, it's just simply, uh, you know, as, as the coup was first breaking and we were dedicating our platform and our nonprofit to supporting it, it was very, um, it was a very like, cognitive dissonance of trying to get through the days in the world of like, you know, living in a stable country in the U.S. where normal things were happening and then getting urgent calls of of absolute um, madness that was happening and from, you know, the other side of the world trying to help people. You know, there was a time when there was a, I got a call from a mutual friend that a, a mother and daughter were literally hiding in, in a park while the military was searching for them because she was associated with the, dem- the democratic movement and they needed a safe house. And I, you know, at like 11 p.m. at night, I'm calling people who run safe houses and trying to get them saved before the military gets them, which they did. And it's like, you know, how am I going through, how am I like doing that and then going shopping for groceries or, you know, having any interaction here where I'm just carrying like this trauma of, of this intensity of, of a life you're literally trying to save in real time and, or, or, you know, atrocities or, or crimes against humanity that you're hearing about as they happen, or as they're about to happen, as they just happened and trying to figure, you know, not coming from that background, trying to figure out how do I, what do we do to, to connect the right people or to, you know, to, to bring this out and it, it just, people just don't care. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I, I, I hesitate saying that because I, I understand there's a lot of bad things going on in the world. I don't, you know, it's been incredibly depressing to me that it hasn't been, there hasn't been more engagement in Buddhist communities. And, um, I think I had some anger to work out in, in the beginning because I just felt, I felt a lot of hypocrisy. I felt a lot of, uh, I did feel a lot of anger that and hurt that a country that had so selflessly and unconditionally given for the kinds of spiritual experiences that people had individually and then shared with their sanghas back home, that the one time that they were in their hour of greatest need, that um, that they've never that I've never really asked for anything. It's just been this one way giving of spiritual teachings that there wasn't more being done to bring awareness and engagement and support and whatever else. Um, over time, I, I realized uh, I, as I've, I've gone, I gotten more into the role than I'm playing now. I've, um, I guess, I've just realized that you don't really know who you are and who your friends are until a crisis hits, and that's true whether you're an individual or whether you're a country uh, or a people or a community. And um, and it, it took, you know, it just took too much effort to uh, to to hold this burden of judgment and of, of, of frustration and sadness. And uh, and so that redirected me to want to find those allies that were ready to stand up in whatever way they wanted to. It doesn't mean like you have to sacrifice your whole life and, and, and disrupt everything you're doing to be involved. You could be involved in very, very small ways, you know, giving very small donations or very small amounts of volunteer work or of just simply reaching out to Burmese people and just saying, I'm a friend, I'm an ally. They feel incredibly alone right now. They don't understand why why no one's talking about them and no one is, is, is public and wanting to support them. And so simply online um, on a public forum or personally to Burmese, you know, or Burmese, you meet saying, I'm sorry, you're going through this. I'm a friend. I'm, I'm here to listen. I'm here to help. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm just here to, to be there for you. Uh, there, there's, there's all ways that one can stand up and, and support and, uh, and be present and bear witness. Um, that, being said, you know, once I, I kind of was able to gain a bit of maturity and insight and, and, uh, and realize how I, what my role was and how I wanted to interact and not carry this burden of, 
uh, of judgment and of, of um, disappointment that was really no good for me. You know, that was my own burden I was carrying. I realized where to find allies and where to find in, in, within the Buddhist community and where, how to talk to them and where to have connections where they would, um, uh, they could be involved. And part of that came in the form of podcast conversations. You know, there was a, an incredible two part conversation we had with Bhikkhu Bodhi where he waded into the, the most difficult questions. As he said after the interview, he said, uh, and you could think about this for someone as, as with as much stature and background as Bhikkhu Bodhi had. He said after this interview, this was the most difficult questions he'd ever been asked in his monastic career. Uh, it was incredible for me to hear, you know, but he answered them and, and it took enormous trust because I told him before, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to set you up. I, 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 I'm asking, I, I'm being transparent that I'm asking you questions that have no good answers. These are terrible, terrible questions, but they're real and they're what people are confronted with. And Bhikkhu Bodhi's courage in doing what so few other Buddhist teachers in the West have done to stand on a public platform and answer questions where you are not going to look good because the reality is so bad and the decisions are so hopeless that um, any way you try to engage with them, you're, um, you're, you're, you're going to make some, someone upset, someone from some background upset and how you're, how you're taking these in. And so I think that's why many Buddhist teachers and communities have simply not engaged because they don't know how to, they don't, they're, they're, um, it's, uh, it's so problematic and so messy that trying to determine the best way to, um, to wade into this is just, it's, it's really, really difficult. And I understand that. And so I think, you know, at one level, one, a Buddhist community or teacher can simply not touch upon the more worldly stuff happening that is admittedly messy. And just simply try to get donation support. I mean, if you, if you, if you want to ignore the rest of the country and you just want to fundraise to feed monks and monasteries power to you, that's, that's fine. You, you don't need to engage in the messiness. And, uh, and, and there's a way to be involved that's just supporting the Sangha and just supporting the Buddhist traditions that are under such attack right now that is tremendously needed, um, for those that, like Bukabodi that are willing to engage to a deeper extent and, and kind of get their hands dirty in the reality of trauma that people are dealing with, there's, there's much more. But, um, I think, um, but I, I think that, you know, partly it comes from, from Buddhist organizations and teachers simply not. And I, I mean, just my conversation with Gail, it, it, uh, became apparent in talking to him how, how he expressed it for himself. They, they don't know where to go to look for information. They don't know how to understand this. It's very complicated. Um, they don't know where the worldly and the politics fits into Buddhism and the Dhamma and, and the monkhood. Um, and, and they don't really know how to understand or how to engage. And, uh, and, you know, people are, are inherently local in terms of what their interests and their concerns and their community are. And even if a Sangha has gotten its lineage from, you know, from Burma, from Lady Sayada, Goenka, Mahasi, uh, Sayada Utejaniya, Paok, all these great lineages, even if your, your spiritual life has come from these traditions, uh, it can, it can sometimes be, it could feel a world away for understanding how to relate and engage. And that's also why I've, I, 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 with our platform, we've tried so hard to be that bridge and to, to show if you have, uh, to the Buddhist community, if you have gained in any way from your interaction with Burmese lineages, with pilgrimages, with meditation courses, with any interaction with what Burmese spirituality has given, 
here is the here's what you can do now. You can here's the range of ways that you can become involved and you can become engaged according to your limitations and your interest and and whatever else. And there's there's really nothing too small that can be done to add your voice or or action to the momentum of of uh, of support. You know, there there is a wave of momentum that is is trying to outside of Burma that is trying to show that people care about this that's pushing international organizations and local representatives and such to action or just being giving morale, giving encouragement, giving order donations to the Burmese people that is keeping this on the radar and showing that it's in, it's in one's heart. Uh, and to whatever extent one wants to give, it's a similar decision when you're practicing meditation or in a monastery, to, to what degree do you want to renounce? What, what, to what degree does one want to renounce and to what, one does one have worldly attachments or or responsibilities or other things and and making it not black and white so that that there's a way to just to, to renounce more renounce less there's a way to engage more and engage less and what our platform has really tried to do with the buddhist community is to worldwide is to show this is why it relates to you this is why it's important this is this is the the degree to which you can become educated or interested or involved and and with the range of interviews we have from you know everything from economists to scholars and historians to all the buddhist background this is the material available to um to try to make it um contextual and uh and possible to to learn this and um you know through your own background in ways that the message is delivered that that uh, that is conducive and contextual to the people we're talking to, as well as people outside the Buddhist community, as we've we've expanded our mission to um, really to want to try to tell the story of what happens when a society completely breaks down and order is has has completely left, and and how people have responded to try to look after themselves and, and protect their human rights, and to be able to to tell that story in a way that's relevant. Um, uh, that, that, that's relevant to anyone from any background and, um, and seeing, you know, and imagining what, uh, how people have responded given the stakes of it. So sorry, I think I'm rambling now. Um, I hope that was, uh, that was an answer, but, um, but if there's a more specific follow up, I'm happy to take that. I was going to ask you, Joe, uh, you mentioned a little bit in the beginning, uh, if you want to talk about better Burma at all. Sure. Um, so yeah, as mentioned, we started this nonprofit. We we uh, I don't think at the beginning many people thought the coup and the resistance movement would last this long, um, and it's probably going to get much much worse. Um, unfortunately, um, because the international community is standing by, and the, the 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 resistance and the the military are somewhat deadlocked, and the military doesn't they they don't really fight fair so they they look for their bullies they look for vulnerable populations to attack and harass and there have have been uh, extensive documentation about the crimes against humanity already committed um the atrocities and so um and um and so as we've stretched on now we've realized that this thing is is going to continue on for some time unfortunately but when we first started the nonprofit we we did not have any we've never lived through a coup before um even living under the regime it's very different from a sudden military coup and had no idea what the playbook was or what was next we thought it was just going to be a um a temporary measure to be able to legal to legally collect donations and and get them to humanitarian services 
that through trusted networks um, and, uh, and to be able to support in that way. However, uh, as it's stretched on, our mission has also expanded and we've, um, we've, we, after now being, um, in existence for about a year and a half, we've become a bit more stable in terms of what we do and the, the, the local team members that are supporting us as well and that we're supporting. And, um, we've, we, uh, Better Burma collects, um, donations to be able to give to a wide range of humanitarian missions, simply put. Uh, those missions can change given the need of the country. When the uh, when the coup first happened, a lot of the money was going to the CDM movement, the civil disobedience, because that was government servants that were in hiding and, and refusing to, to operate um, offices that would allow the military more control and legitimacy. Uh, when the third wave of COVID hit, we put a lot of money into that because, as mentioned, the, the military was weaponizing COVID to to terrorize and, and kill a number of its population through um, denying um, medicine and oxygen to them as, as the as, as the COVID uh, pandemic um, really went into high gear there. And more recently, uh, IDP camps and monks and nuns have been some of the main focus. Uh, there are millions that are in IDP camps now that have had their villages burned uh, that we're trying to support that way. And as mentioned, we also have a number of projects giving food to monks and nuns that the local villagers can no longer support themselves. And, um, and so that's, uh, that's been the thrust of where the funds have gone. Uh, at the same time, we've, we've done some events and we're planning to do some events. We, we managed to I mentioned being in New York. We uh, happened to get some artwork that was made by, by CDM artists um, in um, uh, by, by artists that were in hiding and we managed to get that out of the country and a New York City gallery gave us space to be able to hang it. It was, it was amazing to see this, this freedom of expression by these CDM artists in a New York City gallery. And we auctioned that off. Um, and that, that the money we got from that went to the livelihoods of these people on CDM and then also went to wider humanitarian missions. And so we've done a few of those events and we're doing, um, we're doing a, a, a few more, uh, you know, following our, our site. We'll have that information. And there's one more thing I can mention that we just started. I'll, I'll give the link after I talk, after I say this. I'll search for it and just type it in there. But we have one of our friends who's been a Democratic leader there. We've been friends with her for, for years. And uh, she trained a number of people in vulnerable communities, like HIV-infected mothers and uh, disabled people, how to make, she, she gave the vocational training so that they, they learned to make like Myanmar textiles and, uh, jewelry and stuffed animals and clothing and other types of things. And, um, and this was a way for, for their community to get livelihood as the country was opening up. Uh, of course, because the country, everything has collapsed there, they're not able to, to make any livelihood. So they, so she asked if she could send, these materials to us. So we, our home is now filled with boxes of all kinds of Myanmar handcraft, handicrafts made by these communities that we are, we are just launching and trying to get off. And we, we hope to have connections with like fair trade and handicraft stores around the country that can not just be a way for fundraising, but also be a way to, I mean, these are Myanmar. These, these items are, are part and partial Myanmar. You know, they're, the, the the textiles, the way they look, the way they're made. And so by being a representative of the people in the country, they become a talking piece in and of itself of what the country is going through. So in addition to the fundraising they can bring, they can also be a, a physical item that just puts Myanmar back on the map and reminds people what's going on there and what the people are going through. And, you know, just as I think like 
20 years ago, a lot of Tibetan stuff started to come and there's now you know, hardly any, any city you can go to in America that doesn't have some kind of Tibetan or Nepali store that has these handicrafts. They remind you of the people in the culture. They bring the existence of that place to us and, and, and Myanmar is not so represented there. So we're hoping through these items to, 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 to bring, uh, to have a visual representation, a tactile thing that brings that. So I'll, I'll, I'll give the link there now in just a moment, but, um, but that's one thing we're doing. And then with better Burma in general, you know, we're just, um, uh, any, any donation that's given, you can earmark the donation towards a specific cause or, you know, just give a general donation. And then it goes to our wide range of, uh, of humanitarian projects and anything, anything is appreciated in terms of donation, as well as in terms of, sharing about what we're doing within your community as well as podcasts i mean just taking time to just simply listen to interviews and become informed um that's all all of that is contributing drop by drop to the momentum and you know not having this happen in the darkness and the website is betterburma.org uh, uh yes it is and i i'll just i'm just looking up the uh the handicrafts website we just set up and I'll put that in the chat now. And that is alokacrafts.com. A L O K A C R A F T S.com. Right. I don't see any more questions in the chat, Joa. So I guess we should wrap things up. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we go? Um, from my side, I just want to say how much I appreciate uh, you, Rob, for hosting this and Gil for recommending it. And, for everyone who showed up and stayed, I, I just, I, I really thank you to spend, if you're, if you're in America Saturday morning, I, I really appreciate you spending this time to, to learn about this and to, uh, as mentioned, you know, even just taking the time to hear what's happening, that, that is a success in, in and of itself. Um, anything beyond that is of course appreciated, but just to take the time to bear witness, to be concerned, to be engaged. And that starts with just simply being inquisitive and, you know, our, our time is a, is a valuable resource and we use it in all kinds of ways and to use it to want to learn about this and hear about this. Um, that, uh, that is just something I, I deeply appreciate and thank everyone who is involved and made this happen and showed up. Well, thank you very much, Joe, for taking the time today to speak to us.